Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be with you for the next 45 minutes or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. And hey, I know last month I told you we weren't going to be as vaccine heavy or have anything on vaccines this month. Well, that didn't quite work out. Uh, it turns out that many, many more employers, public safety employers, have gone to vaccine mandates. Uh, the dates by which uh, police, fire, corrections have to be vaccinated uh, have either already happened or would, will be coming up in the near future. And the vaccine mandates, where they exist, almost uniformly end with termination of the employee. So what I thought I would do on this occasion of the podcast is something a little bit different than I did last time, hopefully. Uh, it, it occurred to me about two weeks ago or so that there really wasn't anybody in the country who was tracking the vaccine mandate litigation out there on a case-by-case -case basis. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll give it a shot, see what I can do. Uh, it, uh, and I now understand why there's nobody out there doing it, uh, because many of these decisions are unreported trial court decisions. Uh, you end up having to find them by going to a news article that hopefully has a link to the judge's opinion. If not, you try to go to the court's webpage, because none of these things are going to be on a national database yet, or very, very few of them. But I have put together a table of vaccine mandate litigation. Uh, we will append it in the show notes to this podcast that tries to chronicle how these cases are turning out. So from what I can tell, uh, there have been 37 cases decided on the issue of vaccine mandates. Uh, some of them, about a third of them, involve students, mostly college students who are subject to a vaccine mandate. Uh, the others involve uh, public employment, usually either public safety employees or more frequently health care employees. The principles are the same in all of these cases. And there have been 37 of these cases decided over the last oh, eight months or so. Uh, and when you look at the table, you'll see the different arguments that were raised in the case cases and how the judge responded to those particular arguments. Uh, the cases run the full gamut of making all the arguments you are probably hearing being made in your organization. So arguments like, I've got a right to privacy, uh, and you can't force me to participate in some sort of medical treatment against my will. That violates my right to privacy. Or relatedly, I have a constitutional due process right to bodily integrity, and you can't force me to get vaccinated. Uh, there are arguments that have been made that the vaccines, some of them, not all of them, but some of them, are still only authorized under the Food and Drug Administration's emergency use authorization statutes, the EUA statutes. And the arguments are that those statutes give individuals the right to just say no to a vaccine. Uh, there are 
many other arguments that uh, that you see pop up from time to time in these cases. An argument, for example, that forcing someone to get vaccinated is forcing them to engage in speech. And government, the employer in all of our cases, can't force somebody to engage in speech. It's not a surprise that these arguments are very much the same because the same groups are behind a fair number of these cases. There are some national nonprofits that are opposed to COVID-19 vaccination, and in some cases just simply opposed to vaccination, any form of vaccination. Uh, and these nonprofits are funding some of these lawsuits using the same lawyers. So it's not at all surprising that we find uh, many of the same theories that are out there. So how are these cases coming out? By my count, the score is that employers and schools in the school cases have won 32 of the 37 cases. What about the other five? What about the cases where employees and students have been successful? Uh, and I think it's probably going to be more important to actually focus on those. So uh, here are the five cases. I'm not going to use case names. You can find these on the, uh, on the table if you pick it up from the show notes. But two of the cases uh, struck down a vaccine mandate because it didn't have a religious exemption. Uh, one of the cases, uh, which was a Louisiana case, uh, the court end up striking down a vaccine mandate for students because there's an unusual Louisiana statute that allows students to file written, and I'm quoting, dissents from a mandatory vaccination program. And the school had not dotted all the I's and crossed the T's that are required under that particular statute. The fourth case, which is a Florida case, involved an employer that when it was sued, simply didn't put on any evidence whatsoever. And the court criticizes the employer for doing that, saying basically, how can you expect me to evaluate this case if you don't have any evidence at all? The fifth case, uh, which is one that is already on appeal uh, in the New York system, is that a vaccine policy involves a mandatory subject for bargaining, and the employer can't implement it without first bargaining with the unions. Now, let me take that fifth case for a moment and just tell you where the law seems to be on the bargaining issue. I think you'll agree with me, those other four cases, they are kind of sui generis, right? Uh, they are cases unto their own. We're not likely to see these cases uh, being used as support for challenging a broad vaccine mandate. You know, the two religious exemption cases, well, public sector employers have religious exemptions uh, for their vaccination programs. Uh, and so those cases aren't going to pop up anywhere. Uh, similarly, the failure to comply with a Louisiana statute or the employer showing up and not putting on evidence, that's not going to happen again. But the one that may happen again of these five cases is this argument that vaccination policies are mandatorily negotiable and cannot be implemented by the employer without first bargaining. 
Uh, and that is a New York case. And as I mentioned, it's already on appeal. And uh, sometime within the next week or so, we may see a decision from the appeals court. How are other courts ruling on that issue? Because that has now come up in, by my count, three different states other than uh, New York. Well, what I've referred to as the big case in this area is a case that comes out of California's Public Employment Relations Board, and it involves the University of California's uh, vaccine mandate. And in that case, California's PERB held that the decision to impose a vaccine mandate is not negotiable, but the effects of the decision are. What are the effects? You can bargain over things like, uh, are there going to be disciplinary consequences for not getting vaccinated? Uh, whether vaccination is going to be on on-duty time? Who's going to pay for the cost of vaccination? Is there going to be some sort of reward system, premium pay or extra day off, whatever it might be? There's a lot of different effects that are potentially negotiable. And so California's PERP says decision, not negotiable. But employer, you have to bargain about effects. So, And that is, by the way, the way I think these bargaining cases ultimately will come out. Uh, there may be some on both sides of that equation, but I think that's going to be the majority rule, that an employer can impose the decision but, doesn't, uh, but may not impose the uh, decision without bargaining over the effects. Uh, the big question as to bargaining over effects is, do you have to do it before or after you implement? And in the California case, which was a little bit unusual, and it, it was not a uh, COVID-19 vaccination case, it was a flu vaccination case, uh, in, in that case, the employer actually didn't make the argument that it could go ahead and implement and then bargain about effects. Uh, I think in the context of COVID-19 and the fact that 700,000 people have now died from this disease, I think labor boards are going to say, yeah, employer, well, you have an obligation to bargain about the effects. So long as you're willing to do so, you can impose the decision and continue to bargain about the effects after you impose the decision. We'll have to see on that, but that's the way I think the cases are going to come out. But what about the other cases in the country? Well, the big one uh, is now in New Jersey, and this involves the city of Newark. You'll see the case in the table uh, that we prepared. Uh, and in the Newark case, an unfair labor practice complaint was filed by uh, several unions in the city of Newark. Uh, led by the Commanding Officers Association in the police department. And the argument was you need to bargain over a vaccine mandate. And uh, New Jersey's Public Employment Relations Commission agreed. It said, yeah, employer, you need to bargain over this. Uh, the city appealed to the New Jersey Court of Appeals, uh, which held in a rather stunning decision that the employer did not need to bargain over either the decision or the effects of the decision. And why do I say a rather stunning decision? 
It's because New Jersey courts have been very friendly to the notion that things are negotiable. Uh, and uh, this, this holding is really very inconsistent with a wide body of precedent in, uh, in New Jersey. So we'll see if the unions in that case appeal to the New Jersey Supreme Court. We'll see if the Supreme Court takes the case. Um, but it is, I think it's a very important decision simply from a labor relations standpoint and not so much simply from the standpoint of vaccination. Uh, there's a line in the court's opinion that tells you the court's attitude about the whole case. And I'm just going to quote it for you. City employees have the right to get vaccinated and keep their jobs or decide that they do not want to work for the common good. I can tell the court's opinion of people who are not getting vaccinated. Uh, the third case is one that was uh, filed in the state of Washington, and it was filed against the uh, mandate imposed by the Washington governor on Washington state employees. And this involved a challenge filed by uh, the what's known as the Fish and Wildlife Officers Guild. And the Officers Guild went into court and asked for a temporary restraining order saying, hey, you've got a bargain over this. Uh, and uh, the judge said, no, not negotiable. Judge doesn't uh, get into as nearly as I can tell, and this is just an oral opinion from the judge, so I'm relying on the newspaper reports of the oral opinion. Uh, and the, the judge doesn't get into the niceties between bargaining over the decision and bargaining over the effects. The judge just simply denies the temporary restraining order, uh, saying that on balance, the state's interests in having all of its employees vaccinate predominate over the interests of the union or the employees. Uh, and I want to read you one line out of this judge's opinion and think back to what the New Jersey Court of Appeals said. So here's the judge. 20 people are asking me to look out for their well-being and ignore the well-being of the rest of the state, and I'm frankly unwilling to do so. So those are the five exceptions in the 37 cases, the five exceptions where employees won. The two where there was no religious exemption, one where there was that Louisiana statute, one where the employer failed to offer any evidence, and one, the New York case that held that the vaccination policy was mandatory for bargaining, uh, a decision that is contrary to two other jurisdictions and partly contrary to that uh, University of California case. Uh, that means if you carve out those five cases, uh, which really, I think, as I said earlier, are kind of sui generis, they stand on their own, that means we have 32 cases involving the common claims of uh, you know, unconstitutionality of a vaccine program uh, and the emergency youth use authorization claims. And the score on those cases is employers and schools, 32. Employees and students, zero. Uh, and this gets back to what I said in the last edition of First Thursday. 
I really don't think employees or unions are well advised in putting much hope in the possibility of litigation. Uh, these cases are simply not coming out in favor of uh, employees at all, or unions mostly. Okay, that's it on mandatory vaccination. Pick up that table. Uh, if you want us to mail you the table, uh, send, send us a, an email at uh, info at LRIS.com, and we'll get it to you. Now, on to the cases. But one more thing before I get to the cases. Uh, I saw an article in a newspaper in early September about a new website that is being maintained by Cornell University. Uh, and it's being maintained in the library of the School of uh, Industrial and Labor Relations, which you might think, you know, that, okay, they're, they're keeping this website. And the website is on police union web pages. That might make sense for Cornell's labor college, the ILR school, which is probably the premier labor college in the country. Uh, that's, that makes sense for them to be keeping that sort of archive. Except the purpose of it isn't to chronicle something in the labor movement. Instead, what it is designed to do is to archive the views of police unions and police associations uh, about social and other issues. Uh, and here I'm, I'm going to uh, quote from what the archive's official description says. Analyses of the role of policing in society have reached a peak with issues of law enforcement, social justice, and public security taking center stage. A range of policies and methods as well as critical statements and aspirational proposals are documented in the websites. So a, a caution to all police unions that are out there that have a website. Just remember, somebody is keeping a database with the posts that you make uh, on your website. And be aware of that fact. And we'll post the news article that announces uh, the publication of this website with the show notes. For our cases this month, I want to start with a couple of duty of fair representation cases that have come out that illustrate some basic uh, DFR, I'll call it DFR, uh, duty of fair representation, basic DFR principles. Uh, just as a reminder here, the duty of fair representation is by and large the only duty that a labor organization owes to its members. And the duty of fair representation is essentially a procedural duty. Uh, a union has an obligation to consider potential grievances and other claims from members in a procedurally fair and non-discriminatory manner. And if it does so, then the union will be insulated from a claim of duty of fair representation, uh, even if a labor board or a court disagrees with the union's underlying decision on a case. 
Uh, this is a requirement for fair procedures. So let's talk about the two cases and let's talk about the principles. And the first case is one that if a union, or the principle is one, that if a union is found to have violated the duty of fair representation, it can owe damages to the employee, but it may be that the employer can also owe damages to the employee. Damages have to be apportioned between the employer and the labor organization. So what's up with this case? It's an, an odd case factually. It involves a fellow named Todd Hatfield, who was an assistant fire chief for the city of Grayling, uh, Michigan. Hatfield, in addition to being the assistant fire chief, had completed his police academy training, and he was certified by Michigan's Law Enforcement Commission as a police officer, even though he worked primarily as a firefighter and only filled in for police duties on a catch-as-catch-can basis. Hatfield was part of a bargaining unit not the firefighter bargaining unit, but part of a bargaining unit represented by the Fraternal Order of Police Labor Council. Uh, and this all starts in May of 2017 uh, when the FOP's collective bargaining agreement uh, is just about to expire. The union members hold a vote and decide they're going to change representatives. And they vote for the Police Officers Association of Michigan to become their new union. I'll call that POAM. Uh, and very shortly afterwards, in June of 2017, the union members then vote to remove all command positions from the bargaining unit. And that includes Hatfield's position as assistant fire chief. Uh, in August, so this is all kind of coming boom, boom, boom in the late spring and summer of 2017, uh, the city signs a tentative agreement with POAM, which excludes the fire chief position from the bargaining unit. Hatfield toys for a little while with forming a command union, uh, but he doesn't get around to it. Uh, by October of 2017, when the city hits an economic downturn uh, and restructures its public safety police fire department. And that restructuring involves the elimination of Hatfield's position as assistant fire chief. Uh, so the city tells Hatfield, look, uh, you know, we're restructuring and your job is eliminated. Uh, you are going to be demoted to the position of patrol officer. And Hatfield uh, accepts that. But then the city says something else. The city says, look, in your new position, you're now the lowest in seniority. Uh, Hatfield disagrees with that. He thinks there's a different measurement of seniority than the city is, uh, is using. Uh, he think, he wants to tie it into when he received his uh, peace officer certification from the state. The city thinks it's a different measure of seniority. Uh, and eventually the city hands Hatfield a letter of employment. Uh, Hatfield 
is concerned about signing the letter of employment because it requires him to serve a 12-month uh, probationary period. Hatfield reaches out to the POAM, says, I don't feel comfortable signing this. And the business agent for POAM says, hey, come on, sign it, come to work, fly under the radar for the remaining 11 months of the probationary period. Well, you can imagine what's going to go on next, right? Uh, Hatfield does sign the agreement. Uh, in November of 2017, uh, so we're now about six months or so after this whole chain of events has started. Uh, another agency, the Department of Natural Resources, a conservation officer uh, for the Department of Natural Resources, gets in touch with Hatfield, who has an illegal bait pile on his property. The officer explains to Hatfield, look, I've given a citation to your brother. Uh, Hatfield tells the officer, look, if you give me a citation, I'm going to lose my job. And the conservation officer allows Hatfield to clean up the bait pile. Didn't issue him a citation. And Hatfield says nothing about the whole thing to his employer, which finds out about it anyway, about a month later. Uh, interviews Hatfield. Hatfield denies having any encounter with law enforcement, but eventually comes clean, explains his actions, uh, and the city offers Hatfield a choice between resignation and termination because of his dishonesty uh, and also some insubordination during an internal affairs interview. Hatfield chose to accept termination so he could file a grievance. Uh, and emails POAM and the business agent uh, and, uh, and says, look, I want to file a grievance. And the business agent responds, no, we're not going to do so. It's an FOP issue, even though the FOP is no longer representing employees at the time of, of uh, Hatfield's termination. So Hatfield files an unfair labor practice charge against both the city and POAM, saying, uh, POAM, you breached your duty of fair representation by failing to grieve my demotion and termination. Uh, and this case bounces around a little bit in the uh, state's, uh, State Employment uh, Relations Commission, uh, but eventually the Employment Relations Commission finds that POAM did, in fact, breach its duty of fair representation and sends the case to an administrative law judge uh, to arbitrate the merits of Hatfield's termination. And if the city failed to consent to the arbitration, uh, the, uh, the Labor Commission says POAM should be required to pay all of Hatfield's back pay. Now, that's too much for POAM which appeals that decision to the Michigan Court of Appeals, and the Court of Appeals finds the commission's order too sweeping. Why? Because in the event that the city doesn't go to arbitration, all of the damages, said the court, should not necessarily be paid by POAM. Uh, and here's uh, the words of the court. Merck the commission's order essentially eliminated the requirement that Hatfield must establish that his grievance had merit for POAM to be to pay back pay. Because should the city choose not to arbitrate the issue of POAM's termination, 
POAM would be responsible for damages without a determination that the grievance have merit. This also gives the city enormous incentive to place all the damages on POAM by simply refusing to arbitrate the grievance. Now, here's the most important sentence. Such an outcome contradicts the National Labor Relations Board's teachings that a union should only pay for the portion of damages caused by its failure to represent, not the employer's wrongdoing. And the commission sends the case back down, or excuse me, the Court of Appeals sends the case back down to the commission uh, to figure that all out. So how are damages normally apportioned in these cases? Uh, what portion of the damages in this case, let's assume Hatfield was wrongly terminated, what portion of the damages would be attributable to the city and what would be attributable to the union? And the usual rule of thumb here is that the city would be liable for all the back pay up to the point where the union breached its duty of fair representation. So that would mean up to the point in this case where POAM decided not to take the grievance to arbitration. From that point forward, all the damages are on the POAM. That's how apportionment of damages work. Okay, now the other uh, DFR case that I want to talk about is involves a very, very basic DFR principle that is not widely understood. And that is that the duty of fair representation only applies in settings where the union is the exclusive representative for employees. So let's go to the case here. This is a Florida case. It's decided by uh, somebody who holds the status of general counsel for Florida's Public Employment Relations Commission. This is an unfair labor practice charge filed by Marcus Brinson. He's an IA investigator for the University of Florida Police Department, Department, and he's a member of the PBA, the Police Benevolent Association of Florida. Brinson, in his role as IA investigator, uh, conducted an investigation into allegations of bias by one uh, university police officer against another. And as part of that investigation, Brinson and his compatriot, uh, another IA investigator, conducted a meeting with the subject of the investigation, an officer by the name of Doyle. Uh, following that meeting, Doyle files a complaint with the police chief alleging that Brinson violated his rights under Florida's Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights. Uh, the police chief starts what's called a compliance review, and it ends up sustaining the allegations against Brinson. So Brinson then files a duty of fair representation charge alleging that the PBA representative the representative for Doyle, so the PBA's representative in the IA interview being conducted by Brinson, failed to provide good representation to Doyle during the internal affairs meeting. Um, and the charge goes on to say, had the PBA representative provided knowledgeable representation there never would have been a complaint that the Bill of Rights was violated, and I never would have been found out of compliance with uh, the police department's rules. 
And the charge went on to say that the PBA's demeanor during the meeting was calculated to pressure Brinson into making a mistake and violating Doyle's rights. You can't make this stuff up, right? Uh, but that's what the facts are in this case. The general counsel makes very short work of dismissing uh, Brinson's unfair labor practice complaint. And he does so on the, the, the basis that is probably leaping to all of your minds right now. And that is, if the PBA has a duty of fair representation in this whole situation, it's to Doyle, not Brinson. Brinson doesn't have standing to raise an allegation uh, concerning Doyle's rights in through this unfair labor practice charge. But now to the point that I'm, I want to talk about this case. Uh, the, now to the point, second point raised by the general counsel. The general counsel said, look, even if Brinson had standing, the IA investigation didn't involve negotiation of a collective bargaining agreement or the enforcement of the agreement through the grievance procedure. And I'm quoting, therefore, the PBA's conduct with respect to that assistant assistance does not implicate the PBA's duty of fair representation because the PBA was not acting in an area over which it had exclusive control. In other words, under Florida's Bill of Rights, Doyle could have had the PBA as his representative. In fact, it, uh, Doyle did have the PBA uh, representative uh, on there by his side. But he could have had other people. Under the Bill of Rights, he could have had a private attorney or some other represent representative. Therefore, the union was not the exclusive representative for Doyle in that interview. And if the union is not the exclusive representative, there is no duty of fair representation. It's not just that the duty of fair representation isn't breached. There is no duty of fair representation to begin with. Now, this principle has fairly broad applicability. Uh, there's a, an older, I think it's about 20 years old, uh, decision from the Minnesota Court of Appeals holding that in a louder mill hearing, a due process hearing, because an officer was allowed to have his own private attorney represent him in that louder mill hearing, there was no duty of fair representation. And the union couldn't be held liable for what happened in that louder mill hearing. Um, there are times when unions, fire unions, police unions, uh, whoever, get a request from a member, hey, we want you to provide us a representation, representative for workers' compensation claims. No duty of fair representation because employees can be represented by their own attorney uh, in a workers' compensation claim. Same thing with members who come to a union saying, I want representation in a criminal case, or I want to sue somebody who has injured me on the job. You can think of a wide variety of different circumstances where the answer and the analysis is always going to be the same. No duty of fair representation. So where is the duty of fair representation in existence? It's wherever the union is the 
only entity that can represent the employee. And that is almost exclusively in two forums. First, in negotiating the contract. Only the union can negotiate the contract. And secondly, in processing grievances, usually to the arbitration step. Uh, because most labor agreements only allow the union, they do not allow individuals to seek arbitration. Those are the two primary areas where the duty of fair representation exists. I want to close with a case that is not a vaccination case, but has implications for uh, mandatory vaccination programs. Uh, so the, the broad topic of this case is who gets to choose the reasonable accommodation under the Americans with Disabilities Act, the employer or the employee? So this is a, a case that comes out of the Department of Veteran Affairs Medical Center in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, it involves a police officer for the center by the name of Jesse LeBlanc. And the department uses what it calls a Panama schedule. I've never heard of a Panama schedule, at least by this name, before this case. Uh, and under a Panama schedule, officers work in teams of two. And in a two-week period, two teams will work only day shifts from 8A to 8P. And two teams will work only night shifts from 8P to 8A. Then in the next two-week period... The two teams that work the day shift will work night shifts, and the two teams that work night shifts will work day shifts. By the way, uh, parenthetically, the scientific evidence is compelling that that sort of a shift structure, rotating days and nights every two weeks, will have a detrimental impact on the longevity of officers. Not longevity as police officers, but longevity on this earth. There's a lot of evidence that rotating shifts are the unhealthiest shifts you can have. They're even unhealthier than extremely long shifts. Okay, back to the case. So in 2017, LeBlanc is diagnosed with something called vestibular dysfunction. And as a result, he suffers from dizziness and uh, uh, loss of balance and some related symptoms. And his disease begins to progress. And LeBlanc becomes concerned that this schedule, uh, the Panama schedule he was working, was actually making the symptoms worse, was exacerbating the symptoms. So the department, excuse me, LeBlanc goes to the department and asks the department to accommodate his disability. Uh, what does he want? He wants a work schedule with a stable pattern, no more rotating days and nights, limited night shifts, limited overtime, limited weekend shifts, and the ability to call in for sick leave on short notice if needed. Plus, uh, the ability in the course of his job to limit distractions. So the department gets this request. What that does, of course, is to trigger the department's obligation under the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, to begin the dialogue process of looking for a reasonable accommodation, uh, the exchange of information that is mandated by the ADA. 
and the department offers LeBlanc an interim accommodation while it is considering his request for a permanent accommodation. And the interim accommodation tells LeBlanc, you'll be placed on a day shift of rotation, distributed in a fair and equitable manner over the seven days of the week for a period of three months so that we can determine the effectiveness of that accommodation in alleviating your condition, and so we can assess the impact on the workflow and uh, on the bargaining unit. Now, the department's attorney then gets into uh, the act of evaluating LeBlanc's permanent request for accommodation, and the department's attorney says, I advise against that uh, because the collective bargaining agreement that covers LeBlanc and all police officers, uh, mandates the days off be rotated in a fair and equitable manner among all affected workers. And the attorney's reasoning is, if the department gave Blanc his requested accommodation, his colleagues who'd have to work extra weekend days and extra night shifts could file valid grievances. Now, parenthetically, uh, is that a basis to turn down a requested accommodation? Uh, yeah, it is. If, in fact, granting that accommodation would violate the collective bargaining agreement. Actually, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, has ruled on this issue and has held that uh, for a, an accommodation to be uh, reasonable under the ADA, it has to be one that does not impose an undue hardship on the employer and that forcing the employer to violate a collective bargaining agreement is an undue hardship, which makes the accommodation per se unreasonable. So this attorney's advice is absolutely correct. Uh, and based on the advice, the department ends the interim accommodation and assigns LeBlanc to a position as a transportation assistant at the Veterans Administration. So he's being transferred out of his job as a police officer into a job as a transportation assistant. LeBlanc initially accepts the accommodation, but then he learns that he places first on the scoring of an oral board for the position of training instructor back in the police department. And uh, the police chief, uh, after he sees that LeBlanc places first, here's a rumor that LeBlanc had said somewhere in the process that he would run away from gunfire. The chief decides to hold a second round of interviews for the training instructor position. This time LeBlanc places second and isn't given the position. LeBlanc quits, joins the private sector, and sues the VA under the Americans with Disabilities Act and claims you should have place me permanently on some version of that interim accommodation, the non-rotating shifts and the like. And a federal court uh, that hears this case ends up rejecting LeBlanc's contentions. And why uh, does the court reject the contentions? The, the court says this, and I'm quoting, after considering the relevant facts and circumstances, the VA determined that it could not reasonably accommodate LeBlanc in his current position and that reassignment was an appropriate and justified course. Here it comes. Even though LeBlanc would have preferred an accommodation that kept him 
in his police officer position, he was not entitled to an accommodation of his choice. So what that means is, if there are a multitude of reasonable accommodations out there, accommodation one, accommodation two, accommodation three, the employer gets to select which accommodation will be given to the employee, not the employee. So long as whatever it is the court picks is a reasonable accommodation, that decision will be upheld. And in this case, uh, part of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the part that, uh, that gives us examples of what reasonable accommodations are, actually says transfer to a vacant position. Uh, and so the court says that the Veterans Administration had the full right to assign LeBlanc to that job and not uh, put the VA in a position where it would have to breach the police officer's collective bargaining agreement. Why do I say this has vaccination implications? Because those exemptions that you commonly see in mandatory vaccination programs, the medical exemption and the religious exemption, they don't give the employee a free pass. All they do is obligate an employer to reasonably accommodate the employee's medical condition or religious views. And the employer doesn't have to offer an accommodation that will either cause it an undue hardship or will expose the public or fellow employees uh, to an unsafe condition. Uh, so what is going to happen with all of these employees who are turning in requests for exemption under mandatory vaccination programs, is they're going to go through this, uh, the ADA calls it an interactive process that LeBlanc went through in Minnesota. Uh, they're going to go through this process of exchanging information with the employer to find out if there is somewhere they can work without being vaccinated. And since the, the employers who are adopting mandatory vaccination programs are doing so on the basis that a pandemic exists and it's very important to have everybody vaccinated, uh, there are going to be, I think, very limited opportunities for reasonable accommodation if an employer wants to draw a line in the sand. The employer could offer the accommodation that many employees are asking for, and that would be an accommodation of masking and frequent testing. But the employer might be able to say, even with masking and frequent testing, you're too much of a safety risk, and we don't have to put in place an accommodation that, that has an impact on the safety of the public or fellow employees. Or, the employer could say something like, okay, uh, we'll accept the notion that uh, you, there should be frequent uh, testing and masking, uh, but you're going to have to pay for the testing, and the testing's going to have to be on your own dime, and you're not going to be able to work in a frontline position. You're not going to be able to work as a uniform corrections officer, police officer, or a uh, suppression firefighter. Instead, you're going to have to work some other job that might be on some other schedule. All of this by way of saying, we haven't seen any of these cases yet, 
But all of this by way of saying we're going to see a lot of action over these reasonable accommodation cases in the courts, I think, over uh, the next few years as all of the long tail on mandatory vaccination cases uh, after we run through that long tail. Okay, that's it for the October 2021 edition of First Thursday. Uh, hope you join us uh, for next month's edition of First Thursday, and also for you people who simply cannot get enough of vaccination. Uh, that table I told you, we've posted on our website. Uh, we're going to do a special podcast. It'll be part of our premium podcast series where I will go through all the legal arguments in fairly great detail. Uh, I'll probably spend an hour or so going through the legal arguments and how courts are resolving all those arguments. Uh, look forward to a notice of that that we will, I'm sure, email out to half of the Western world. So with that, thank you for uh, joining us for First Thursday. And this is Will Aitchison signing off.